0: we have been going through the book of acts been in acts 13 and in that section there's a sermon given by the apostle paul where he's quoting a bunch of old testament scripture and it dawns on me as i did that and going through this passage that there is perhaps a lot of skepticism by people regarding the old testament and by the way, wasn't it a great message last week by Stan Wallace on, on the Bible? I mean, that was, that was tremendous. Um, Stan and I have actually talked about this. He's got people there in Kansas City, and we got people here in the religious community that are dogging the Bible, that, that don't believe the Bible is the word of God, and people listen and people follow that. That is very concerning for me as a pastor is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New? Um, how does the Old Testament, uh, how do we uh, to place it in our lives today? Does it have any bearing, any say? Um, is it a part of the Word of God? Uh, Brian McLaren, who's kind of the guru of postmodern faith, says that biblical revelation of God moves from what he calls a, a, a violent tribal God in the Old Testament to a Christ-like god in the new. As a result, he says, we, we cannot simply say that the highest revelation of God is given through the Bible. Rather, we can say that for Christians, it's in Jesus who gives us the highest and deepest and most mature view of the character of God. Well, what's interesting about that is once you take that step, that's just right around the corner from banishing the Old Testament altogether. And this is nothing new. There was a heresy about 100 years after the birth of Christ called Marcionism. Marcion was a man who thought that the wrathful God of the Old Testament was kind of a lower entity than the God of the New Testament and that we were to eschew this wrathful God of the Old Testament. It had this strict dualistic view of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, The atheist Sam Harris adds that if the Bible is true, then we should be stoning people for heresy, adultery, homosexuality, worshiping graven images, and other imaginary crimes. So Christians get caught up in this, read this, hear this, and perhaps... You know, the, there's doubt that get cast in our head, and we run with that, and we think, well, you know what? One thing's for sure, I'm uncomfortable with the Old Testament. I think we could all say that. There's, there's passages that we're uncomfortable with. It's just like, man, what is that, right? Is that okay to say in a, in a sermon? Yeah, it is. And so we're thinking, you know, it'd be better just to get about it, just dislodge ourselves from the Old Testament. A lot of people think that. Well, and then the next step is, why do we need the Bible at all, all right? Uh, the Bible's not the word of God. Now, for those who seek a, a milder God who you know, doesn't judge like the Old Testament, this is the way they put it, I would say this, and I would say it in the words of Jesus, trying to get rid of the Old Testament, they know not what they do. So I want to pick up this theme of the Old Testament being the Word of God and how it's placed in our lives and address how Jesus viewed the the Old Testament. When we're done with this sermon, we'll get back to Acts eventually. Um, I'm actually going to do a message on prayer to end our our month on prayer uh, next week, but then we'll, we'll get back to Acts 13. Here's the first point that we want to look at. Critics often fail to appreciate the temporary and limited nature of the Mosaic law. As I hear people talk about, well, now, are you saying then that, you know, you can't eat shrimp or, you know, are you saying that you can't wear certain clothing like the Old Testament law does? And I hear pastors saying this. I'm like, dude, the law is temporary. Old Testament writers understood, even as they were writing the Old Testament, that the Old Testament law was not meant to go on forever. Listen to this. This is out of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I've made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, let me just backtrack for a second. What actually is, is set aside? Well, I think we could safely say the ceremonial laws and the civil laws intended for Israel have been set aside. There is, we could call it a moral law based upon the character of God that was expressed in the Old Testament and is also in the New that that lasts forever. But when we talk about the law ending, as it were, or being fulfilled in Christ, we're talking about those ceremonial and civic laws addressed specifically to Israel. The Old Testament sacrifices were temporary because a perfect sacrifice would come in Christ. No longer would there need to be annual sacrifices that would simply forego the judgment of God. You know, we, we kill these bulls, all right, God will forego judgment until the next year. Oh, we'll kill some more bulls next year. Every year, had to go through the whole priestly sacrificial system. But now that the perfect Lamb of God, spotless Lamb, eternal high priest, died on a cross, our sins are forgiven past, present, and and future. We read this in Hebrews. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. Then he added, behold, I will come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The first, the law, the second, the new covenant in Christ. Not only was the Old Testament law limited in time, but it was limited in scope. The Old Testament law was intended for Israel. The garment restrictions, the diet restrictions, the specific punishments were a way to demonstrate their separateness, speaking of Israel, their separateness from a larger society, from the culture around them. Such laws were never intended to be given to every nation. We see this limited scope in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. I've got my treasured possession and then I've got everybody else. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of who? To the people of Israel. So all of these laws about clothing, about eating, they could not make a heart clean. These would be reminders though of what we might call a greater cleansing that was to come in Christ. As Jeremiah said, a new heart, a heart being cleansed. Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for sin makes us clean. The veil that was in the temple, that was like a foot thick. When Jesus died on that cross, it was supernaturally torn in two, that no longer is there a separation from all of the priests and all of these people that were in the Holy of Holies to help with the sacrifices and all that. None of that anymore. Now we have a, a segue because of Christ, an entryway to enter the Holy of Holies. It's a way of saying we can now embrace this relationship with God with freedom and with confidence because of the work of Jesus. The need for an entire sacrificial system with all its dietary clothing and other cleanliness laws were no longer needed. People could now relate to God on the basis of Christ's work, and they can do so with freedom, and they can do so with confidence. You might ask the question, then why don't more Christians enjoy the freedom and the confidence? And I would say in large measure, it's because they still get caught up in the legalism. They resemble more of, a, of an Old Testament way of approaching things. So why would we dismiss or denigrate the Old Testament, which was a picture of what was to come in the new in the sacrifice of Christ? Why would you do that? It's denigrating Christ himself. Mosaic law was temporary, was never universal or binding upon all humans or all cultures, that ceremonial and civic law for Israel. In fact, just to kind of make application for us today, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, saw the New England colony, he called it a city on a hill, akin to Israel. This represented the view of many early American founders, in fact. Early America embraced unique traits that, I would say, contributed to our success, namely our Christian heritage. But then has developed this kind of doctrine of American exceptionalism. In the eyes of some, it came about because... They said that we had this direct connection to God like Israel. The notion of being a city on a hill, you know, that's that's no subtle reference. We're just like Israel, a chosen people. But America is not made up solely of God's people. For God's people are not limited to one nation, Old Testament Israel was the one and only genuine theocracy ever to exist. And it was temporary at that. Israel was established by God to set up religious, cultural, and a historical context for the saving work of Christ. It was like the delivery system for Christ to enter the world. And salvation was now being brought to all nations. That's why the book of Acts is so pivotal and why they had such a a hard time understanding this gospel message because you had Jew and Gentile now coming together and these people who felt so special being God's people and God just blew open the doors and said, no, now Gentiles are available to experience this relationship to Christ without going through the law the gospel brings this new covenant relationship with God to all people. Instead of seeing this as some kind of mark against America, it's actually good news. There is no you know, country that owns the gospel. It's open to every country. The kingdom of God has no geographical borders. It transcends any specific human government. And this is brought about by the new covenant in Christ. It's available for the white man, the Chinese man, the black man, the Arab. It's available for somebody who grows up in Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Africa. They don't have to walk through temple sacrifices. They don't have to be uh, baptized to uh, enjoy that benefit. They don't have to be catechized. They simply have to believe the gospel. Now, we, we follow the Lord in obedience and baptism after that salvation, but the point is, everybody gets to say yes to Christ and enjoy the benefits of being a child of God. That was a revolutionary idea for the Jew the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies, even though no longer in operation, still have meaning. As I said, they were that delivery system. They were a picture, a forerunner of what God provides for us today. And while we no longer are under the old covenant, it does not mean it's without value. The Old Testament ceremonies and even all the specific laws are a, an imperfect picture of what was to come in Christ. These hard-to-understand passages of, of people being cleared out even as, as God's people were taking over the promised land. That was intended for Israel. But it reminds us of a, what was an imperfect system then, but it also reminds us of a God who has always been perfect and holy. In character, and you don't trifle with them. Hebrew says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, implying that it was with fault, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And by fault, I mean, just simply didn't go far enough. It was limited. It could not do what the new covenant could do. And so, limited in time, Limited in scope, the Old Testament. Next, is that critics often fail to appreciate the historical nuances of the Mosaic Law. Now, imagine for a second, a Western diplomat wanting to export democracy to, let's say, Pakistan. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Pakistan, they are 96% Muslim. Think of the difficulties to overcome trying to import democracy. Tainted with a little bit of your religion with people who are thinking Sharia law. I mean, a radical change of heart and mind would be required. And simply changing laws would not change the thinking of the people in Pakistan. In fact, you can probably imagine there would be large-scale resistance to those kinds of changes. Agreed? So if we journey back into the ancient Near East during the time of the Old Testament, we enter a world that was vastly different than ours. And these people would seem strangely foreign to us with all kinds of of ways of operating and, and, and assumptions that we would find rather queer, because they would be so different. We would also see a culture whose social structures were badly damaged by the fall, by sin entering the world. It's within that context that God is trying to raise up a covenant nation and then give his people laws to live by. Now, Israel was not immune to being influenced by the culture. And understand that Israel progressively got further away from the ideal that God wanted for his people, which was first revealed in the garden, where they had perfect fellowship, people did with God, and perfect fellowship with one another. But it was short-lived. So the Mosaic Law was a tool to move God's people toward this separateness to recognize these people different from the rest of the culture. They would be God's representatives as a people, but certainly imperfect. We see, for instance, Israel far from the ideal in Genesis 2, when the prescription of marriage is given. One man... One woman in permanence and unity. And then we read this. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You have strayed so far, there has got to be a law to limit the impact. There's an exception, if you will, of divorce. But in the beginning, that was not necessary. God put into the Mosaic law a way for people to escape further negative impact from a culture around them. The ideal was not divorce. The ideal was this marriage that God laid out in Genesis. But sin entered the picture. And by the way, it's entered all of our pictures and all of our narratives, right? None of us are exempt. But God had to put things in place as a protection and as a way of communicating the separateness. The culture of the Near East was rife with idol worship that included every sexual deviation you can think of, included polygamy, Slavery, a host of other maladies as a result of the fall of humankind. And I might add, God never approved of any of that. But laws were put in a place to deal with the culture that they were living in, to help God's people to establish a separateness from that culture. Another example would be the justice system at the time of the surrounding culture when God gave these laws. For a certain crimes, the Hammurabi Code, which was the Babylonian code of law, insisted that with minor offenses, you have your tongue, breast, hand, or ear be cut off. Uh, One severe punishment involved the accused being dragged around in a field by cattle. In ancient Egyptian law, punishments included cutting off the nose and the ear, and the code of Hammurabi insisted on death for a thief. Whereas the Old Testament demanded double compensation for the law. So, you know, if you take something worth five dollars, you gotta pay back ten. And regarding penalties for theft in the Old Testament, David Baker observes, and I quote, that those laws were much more humane than in ancient Near East laws, because they never involved mutilation, beating, or death. Deuteronomy says this in this regard, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, The judges will inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You might remember Jesus even repeating those words in the New Testament. I want to read for you a commentary on this written by Paul Copan in his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. And by the way, if you have further questions about more specifics in the Old Testament law, I'd highly recommend that little book. It's About 250 pages, does a great job in dealing with a lot of the specifics I just don't have time to go into. Let me read this passage for you. I think it sheds a lot of light. Such exacting punishments, that eye-for-eye know, eye stuff, called lex talionis, are mentioned in several places. And he mentions uh, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. What's interesting is that in none of the cases is an eye-for-an-eye eye taken Literally. Yes, a life for a life was taken in a straightforward way when it came to murder, yet such examples in these passages calls for monetary compensations, not bodily mutilation. For example, following on the heels of the Lex Talionis passage in Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25, comes Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27. And it illustrates the point we're making quite nicely. If a man hits a manservant or maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of the manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free for, uh, to compensate for the tooth. We don't have a literal eye or tooth in view here, just compensation for bodily harm. Scholars such as Raymond Westbrook note that the lex talionis was... Uh, as a principle of compensation, wasn't taken literally. The point of lex talionis is this, the punishment should fit the crime. Furthermore, these were the maximum penalties. Punishments were to be proportional and couldn't exceed that standard And a punishment could be less severe if the judge deemed that the crime required a lesser penalty. Later in the New Testament, Jesus himself didn't take such language literally either. The language had been misapplied by Jesus' contemporaries outside the law courts as a pretext for personal vengeance. At any rate, Jesus took this language no more literally than he did the language of plucking out eyes and cutting off hands if that lead one to sin. What's more, carrying out punishments that fit the crime protected the more vulnerable, The weak, the poor, the alienated, the wealthy and powerful couldn't dictate the terms of punishment. In fact, the socially elite could receive these proportional punishments like everyone else, end quote. So what we sometimes have viewed this eye for an eye as some kind of literal thing, what is that, was actually the Old Testament law saying make the punishment proportional. Let the the judgment fit the crime. It was a way to convey exacting punishment, not to go way beyond the offense. And so in fact, the Old Testament law in this case brought a greater mercy than what the outer culture was practicing. And when you when you take into consideration the outer culture, then those words of eye for an eye make perfect sense. Jesus, lastly, normally I get applause when I say lastly, viewed the Old Testament as the word of God. Jesus viewed the Old Testament as the word of God. It completely befuddles me how anybody in their right mind could say, I just want to take the words of Jesus, but not the Old Testament. (laughs) I mean, do they even get what they're saying? Do you understand that, that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was divinely inspired? Do you understand that Jesus quoted the Old Testament? Do you understand that in the New Testament, The Old Testament is quoted directly over 300 times, alluded to 500 times. Jesus said of the old, the scripture cannot be broken. Now, when he speaks of the scripture, the only thing he has in hand is an Old Testament scroll, That was in John 10, 35. He called the Old Testament scripture the commandment of God. So if I'm gonna believe Jesus and just take his words, then I have to believe that the Old Testament was the word of God. And he called it the word of God in Mark 7, 13. Those who embrace Jesus and denigrate or try to banish the Old Testament are living in a fantasy world to think they can accept one and reject the other. Jesus had a firm commitment to the Old Testament as the word of God. And we're going to drill down on some particular verses that I think further make this point if you're not convinced yet. Mark 12, 24 through 27 says this, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, first of all, Speaking to a bunch of religious leaders, not only do you not know God, you don't know your own scriptures. I mean, you can understand why they wanted him dead. And and to this day are not the greatest enemies to the advancement of the gospel religious leaders. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham. And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What we see here is that Jesus was basing his whole argument, get this now, on the tense of a verb out of the Old Testament. I mean, as proof of a fu- future resurrection, Jesus quotes God's word to Moses at the burning bush I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I mean, from a human standpoint, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead. Yet, Jesus is saying, not God was, God is the God of these men. Why? Because they are still living with God. And God is alive. Jesus is using the present tense Hebrew word for am to prove that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still experiencing life with God. Now, what kind of confidence in the authority and preservation of the Old Testament would Jesus have to have to hang his entire argument on a verb? We also read this in Mark 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, uh, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he, his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Here Jesus quotes Psalm 110, confirms David is the author of, But also, Jesus states that David wrote, by whose power? Under the power of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And then Matthew 5. Uh, Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not one iota, not a dot. It's like the not one iota, not the crossing of a T or not the dotting of an I will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The phrase law and prophets, that was a common phrase given in in that time period to refer to the Old Testament. Jesus is clearly saying the Old Testament is not irrelevant. Now, at the same time, he's also saying it's temporary because one day it's going to be fulfilled. But he's saying not one iota, not one dot. I've come to fulfill it, but it's not abrogated into Neverland. His life was in perfect obedience as a perfect sacrifice. His atoning death on the cross made the sacrifices no longer necessary. There's one more passage. This is pretty cool. It's out of Matthew 23. 23. You couldn't wait to kill the guy until he got out of church. You did it in the, between the sanctuary and the altar. and That's how upset these people were. I mean, he, he's condemning the religious hypocrites of his own day saying, you're just like your forefathers who killed the prophets and other righteous men of God. And he said, it was done from Abel all the way to Zechariah. What's significant about that? Well, when the Old Testament was first put together, It was not put in the books as we know. I mean, they had the books that we know, but it was not from Genesis to Malachi. It was from Genesis to Chronicles. And at the time, Chronicles was one book, okay? Now, where is Abel spoken about? The book of Genesis. Where is Zechariah spoken about? Chronicles. What Jesus is saying is that from the beginning of the Old Testament, to the end of the Old Testament. There are issues that you folks have not deal with, have not dealt with. From Abel to Zechariah, in that one statement, he's acknowledging and commending the entire Old Testament. From the first to the last book. My dear friends, the same grace giving, ever loving, holy and righteous God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They are perfectly united in that the Old Testament provided the passageway, the context, the delivery system for Christ to come. He fulfilled these promises of God and he gave to his people this new covenants. And he gave to the people a New Testament. Jesus said to the disciples, in fact, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will help you to disclose what is to come. What's that? That's the book of Revelation. And he said the Holy Spirit will also remind you of all things. What's that? Those are the gospels. And then he says the Holy Spirit will also teach you all things. What is that? Those are the epistles. The entire New Testament is, Jesus promised that the apostles would write. We can have supreme confidence that Jesus viewed the Old Testament as the word of God. Old and new, God's revelation to us. Let us not allow the critics to move our confidence away that this Bible is the word of God. My dear friends, I'm not going to fight you about politics. I will not fight you about your eschatology or how you need to baptize or about lifestyle issues, about whether you should drink or what kind of movies you should go to. But you want to start denigrating the Word of God? To me, as a pastor, them is fighting words. Now, I don't mean I don't mean fight I don't mean fighting words in a violent sense. I don't mean fighting words to be ugly at somebody. What I mean is we need to stand firm in what we believe. And we do that in love and we do that in humility. The last thing we need are more denominational wars and arguing with one another. There's enough of that. But we have to stand and know for why we have a hope within us. The word of God is true. I will stand on that, and I will die for that. And I will die that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. Those are essential matters for our faith. You know, Christ Community Church is kind of an experiment, if you will, an experiment of over 30 years, that we've tried not to get lost in the weeds about secondary issues. Not that we can't take positions on secondary issues, but we believe that the the Bible is the word of God, that the gospel is true. Can we have unity believing those things even though we might disagree about some some of the other things? I believe we can. I don't really care if you're post-mill, ah-mill, pre-mill, I don't really care whether you speak in tongues or not. What I care about is whether we are united, that the word of God is true, and that Jesus is who he said he is. Can we get along together? Can we fellowship together on that? If we're fighting about the other stuff, I don't think yet we've learned what unity, New Testament unity is really about. Father, thank you for your word that is true. I thank you for the fact that you have given to us this revelation. And Lord, I'll be the first one to admit that we screw it up. I'll be the first one to admit that not only do we not understand sometimes, but we get it wrong. We get hot and bothered about stuff we shouldn't get hot and bothered about, and we fight. But Lord, we know that we're to stand firm. And I... I remember the words that Paul wrote to Timothy that that he was to guard the deposit that was given to them, speaking of the word. You're you're to protect it. Lord, there's such a strong desire for know why we believe what we believe. Not, Not in a sense of saying we're better than the next guy and not to create a conflict, but Lord, so that we can have confidence that what you have said is true. So I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, that they would would have a, a deep sense that your word is true. And where there are doubts, they would be intellectually honest about those doubts and that you might teach, you might come alongside and help them come to grips with whatever those questions are. And we all have them. So we admit our finiteness to you, God, And we approach this not having all the answers. But I pray that you'll help us as a body to just come at this with a great sense of humility and yet confidence. A great sense of conviction and yet love. A great sense that there are some things that we know to be true, and yet there's great grace that we're not pointing fingers but our hands are open to embrace anybody who would come. So Lord, continue to work in our midst in that way. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who are, are serious about their faith. I was so encouraged by last week, Lord, about the questions that people ask, and it just showed me how serious-minded people are about coming to grips with what your word is and what it says to us. And I pray that you'll continue to draw us to yourself, not so we can be eggheads, but so we can draw in relationship to you and draw near. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.